You are listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. The claims put forth by AIDS denialists are easily dismissed by the scientific community. So why should we bother to pay attention to their actions? It is because when they are able to persuade, the results are devastating. And there has been no greater example of the devastation caused by AIDS denialists than in South Africa. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Boston is Dr. Pride Chigwadere. Dr. Chigwadere is an affiliate of the Harvard AIDS Initiative. He trained and worked as a physician in Zimbabwe before completing graduate work at Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Chigwadere is the lead author of a recently published article estimating the human toll of South Africa's AIDS policies. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Dr. Chigwadere, review for us the policies toward AIDS and HIV under former President Mbeki. President Mbeki came into office in 1999. Prior to that, he was the vice president to Nelson Mandela. And on the AIDS scene, there was pressure to start using the Dovudin or AZT in the prevention of mother-to-child transmission for HIV. And there were questions on whether the South African government would afford it. But what President Mbeki did was he thought AZT was toxic. That is the reason why he was not going to provide it to the pregnant women who needed it. And then he moved a step further beginning of 2000 and said that actually he didn't believe HIV was the cause of AIDS. And he appointed a panel where he invited people like David Trasnick and Peter Duesbeck, well-known AIDS denialists, to support him in that HIV was not the cause of AIDS. And the effect, the effect of this was to broaden the debate from AZT, which was a single drug that he had said was toxic, to the claim that all antiretroviral drugs were useless because they all targeted HIV and HIV was not the problem in this epidemic. He implemented specific policies. In 1999, he withdrew South African government support from Kauten clinics, which had started to use as a dovedin to prevent mother-to-child transmission. In the year 2000, the company Boringa Ingelheim donated nivirapine, which is another drug used to prevent mother-to-child transmission. I donated it free of charge for five years to all developing countries. And the South African government responded by restricting its use to two pilot sites per province until for at least 18 months. And then in 2002, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria was created. And one of the first grants that it awarded was to the province KwaZulu-Natal, which is the worst affected province in South Africa. It was a grant of $71 million. And the South African government blocked the acquisition of that grant on some technical grounds that it was being awarded to a province rather than the national government. So in short, President Becky stated his reasons. He thought antiretroviral drugs were toxic. He didn't believe HIV was the cause of AIDS. And he followed it up with specific policies that obstructed the use of antiretroviral drugs, including freely donated antiretroviral drugs, including resources that came from abroad, not from the South African government, from the Global Fund, that were meant to be used to treat AIDS patients or prevent mother-to-child transmission. So the paper that we wrote was an attempt to estimate the number of lives that were lost and the number of babies that got infected as a result of the policies that were implemented by President Becky's government. Right. In your study, you looked at the cost in lives in South Africa because antiretroviral drugs, both for treatment and prevention of mother-to-child HIV transmission, were not made available. What did you find? The results are really frightening. Our results showed that at least 330,000 lives were lost because of the policies that the Mbeki government implemented between 2000 and 2005. 
and at least 35,000 babies were born with HIV, which could have been prevented had antiretroviral drugs been used to prevent mother-to-child transmission. Tell us about the role of the health minister during this time. The health minister was a lady called Manto Chabalala Simang. She she's a medical doctor, trained in medicine and in public health as well, worked in Southern Africa, including Botswana, South Africa, and was together with President Mbeki, fight against the apartheid government, and she was appointed health minister by Mbeki. So when Mbeki took his position that he didn't think HIV was the cause of AIDS, thought antiretroviral drugs were toxic, the minister moved in as a credible health person to support those claims. She initially tried to use the Medicines Control Council, but the Medicines Control Council issued uh, reports indicating that use of antiretroviral drugs were good, and then the minister overrided that. And she became the point person, actually, for supporting the denialist claims once Mickey was in the background. And she continued doing that right up to 2006. The international community is aware that she was at the International AIDS Conference in Toronto in 2006. And on the South Africa tent, she was displaying beetroot, garlic, and other fruits and vegetables, and claiming that they were substitutes for antiretroviral drugs. They were better. They were alternatives rather than, you know, additives. They were alternatives to ARV drug use. So the minister was the person with the medical credentials, with the public health credentials, who stood to support the AIDS denialist claims and actually implemented the policies on the ground. The negligence on the part of the government and the health minister to provide effective treatment for HIV and AIDS is considered by many to be a human rights violation, the type that can mobilize the scientific and medical community. What has been the response of professionals? The response is still coming in. There was a lot of publicity that the paper got. It it made front page article in the Times the Times of South Africa, that was the first major publication to write a front page article on the paper. And then many other newspapers picked it up, it was on BBC. And then here in the US, the story was broken up by the New York Times, I think. And then after the New York Times, there was a flurry of newspapers in the US and, and in the rest of the world that reported on the article. And people, people have indicated that they are, you know, frankly disgusted about the policies that the Mbeki government implemented and are calling for some form of accountability and, you know, they're using the language that you've indicated that it is a human rights violation and, you know, it is moving towards some form of accountability. The way we've looked at it from the public health point of view, the claim that we have as the authors of the paper is that it is possible to evaluate public health practice, to evaluate and come up with an estimate a number estimate of the consequences of specific public health programs. And then this is what we did by using South Africa as an example. So in professional circles, the big claim is that we should be moving towards evaluating specific public health programs and indicating that these were the consequences and were the consequences beneficial or bad. And that opens up the whole question of accountability in public health. Once we can demonstrate that these public health programs led to the death or harm of you know thousands of people or hundreds of people, whatever the number is, then the next question is how do we come up with a framework for accountability in public health? So there was a response that came from the media, sort of, you know, the high level attention. But within the professional circles we think we've opened up an area of inquiry, starting out with simple methods of evaluating consequences of public health programs. Once we know those consequences, moving in to lay a framework for accountability in public health. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Pride Chigwadere. We are discussing his recent publication, which estimates the loss of life in South Africa resulting from government policies which prevented those in need from receiving scientifically proven treatments. And, Doctor, you are referring to accountability for public health programs. With regard to this specifically, what's your opinion about what should be done to combat the damage created by AIDS denialists? I'm not too sure I'm qualified to answer that. I, I defer to colleagues who have better training in law, uh, in human rights, and in international affairs. But we've opened up the question, and I think there are groups that are looking at how to move and use maybe the courts, maybe international institutions to get some form of accountability for AIDS denialists and for the policy implementers, the people, for example, that that headed the South African government. Dr. Chiguadere, can you tell us about your experiences in Zimbabwe treating AIDS patients and how that has influenced your work now as a researcher? I trained at the University of Zimbabwe Medical School and graduated in 1997. And then I was a resident medical officer in 1998, 99 to 2000 in general medicine. So the system is slightly different. We, we did rotations in everything. The aim is to since there's a shortage of doctors, the aim is to develop a doctor who can handle a little obstetrics and gynecology, a little internal medicine, a little pediatrics. So I worked in the Zimbabwean hospitals when, when the AIDS epidemic was, was had already bloomed and people were suffering from the disease and dying, and we didn't have any antiretroviral drugs to treat them. So in internal medicine, they would present with the pneumocystis pneumonia, with cryptococcal meningitis, you know, the opportunistic infections, and we didn't have antiretroviral drugs. So my duty as a resident officer, as a resident doctor, was to be there to try and resuscitate them when they collapsed, but we knew it was futile because we didn't have the medications, not just the antiretroviral drugs, but also the medications to treat the opportunistic infections. And I usually summarize my experiences that I was there to witness the patients dying. But this was not just in internal medicine. In pediatrics, the babies just wouldn't grow, and the terminology that we used was failure to thrive. In obstetrics, they presented with pelvic abscesses, pelvic infections and pelvic abscesses. And when I did surgery, we were very careful not to operate on patients who were immunosuppressed because once you operate on them, they develop wound infections and they sepsis and they deteriorate and die and then you end up with accusations that it was poor surgical technique rather than maybe the underlying immunosuppression. So my experience was that of seeing patients die and I, I worked in a junior capacity it was my duty to be there when the patients died. When I moved over to Harvard and started researching and I joined Max Essex, who's a pioneer retrovirologist, I kept the focus that, you know, I wanted to do work that had bearing on trying to improve trying to improve the availability of drugs uh, to Zimbabwe or Southern Africa. And then I kept my focus on that and then one of the studies that we did was to try and identify barriers um, to the use of antiretroviral drugs. And then there were many issues, including people that feared that there would be widespread drug resistance, there were costs of the drugs, lack of human resources in Africa, and many other reasons. But from that list of reasons, it was also clear that wrong policies, bad public health policies, were a contributory factor. And then this is, this is why we ended up with this study that analyzed specifically South Africa, where the questions, the effects of the case are not in dispute. Mbeki has never denied the stance that he took and we move to try and evaluate the consequences of, of his policies.
It wasn't just bad information either. They Tell us about the alternative treatments that, that were promoted, such as Africa's solution. There have been several. The, specifically in South Africa, there were two researchers who were based at the University of Pretoria, who I think it was in 1997, claimed that they had discovered a cure for AIDS. And this was a solvent, an industrial solvent called Virodin. They called it Virodin. It was a solvent and, you know, some toxic solvent. If you put the virus into the solvent, it would obviously kill the virus or bacteria, but it also killed cells. So it was not a drug. Drugs work by selective toxicity, by specifically targeting the virus, but without destroying the human tissues. But it excited the African National Congress and then Tabombeki was the vice president and he invited the researchers and they gave a presentation to the South African cabinet and it was claimed as an African solution to the epidemic. And mind you, South Africa had just come out of apartheid and they were skeptical or suspicious of solutions that came from outside Africa. But the studies were, the virodin was later evaluated. It was shown to be toxic and essentially useless. And similar claims that come from Kenya. Kenya actually started this with their Cameron a little before virodin. So South Africa, or maybe I should say Mbeki, Mbeki had been, uh, moved into this corner of seeking African solutions to African problems. And when the pressure was on him to use antiretroviral drugs that were coming in from the West, he kept on clinging to African solutions. But, you know, it is also interesting that when he appointed the panel to examine the cause of AIDS, you know, the people that he invited were not Africans. He has not refused any other technologies that come from the U.S. or Japan. It was just specifically to AIDS, and then we think he was greatly influenced by the AIDS denialists. The many other things that they've looked at as alternatives are the things that I've indicated, beetroot, garlic. The doctor called Matthias Rath, uh, who runs the Rath Foundation. He promotes vitamins, a bunch of vitamins, different combinations as a treatment for AIDS. These are what they've called alternative solutions. There's a pumpkin-like vegetable that also received wide attention maybe three, four years ago. They call it the African potato. These are what they've called alternative treatments. None of them have been tested in clinical trials. Vitamins and fruits and vegetables are good for the human diet. They're just not treatment for HIV. Well, it'll be interesting to see what the scientific and legal community's response will be to your study. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Pride Cheguadere an affiliate of the Harvard AIDS Initiative. You've been listening to Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Reach MD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at reachmd.com and thank you for listening.